0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, I'm Lisa Leong and today on This Working Life, we're revisiting a chat with former journalist and communication specialist, Andrea Clark, author of Future Fit. When I chatted with Andrea in 2019, we are exploring how to remain relevant in a rapidly changing world and workplace. Then COVID hit. According to McKinsey, changes to work that had been predicted to pan out over the next five years were delivered in 60 days. And what Andrea predicts in this interview were not only spot on, but amplified. Andrea's book, Future Fit, starts where all good stories start, a moment of personal disaster. She was the head of comms for one of the largest agencies in the US, her dream job, and then one day, she was shockingly sacked. Andrea Clark, welcome. Thank
0: you, Lisa. Thank you
1: for having me. I do want to go to that moment of truth for you. You were head of communications for one of the world's largest aid agencies in the US, maybe even your dream job, but then you got sacked. What happened?
0: It was absolutely my dream job and at the time that particular organisation was given $2 billion by the US government to rebuild Iraq and Afghanistan and I had the privilege of visiting Iraq, Baghdad specifically, to gather proof that what we were doing on the ground was in fact working. So we could have those programs refunded and encourage Iraqis to uh, restart their businesses who had abandoned them early in the Iraq war. And it was a moment of absolute truth. It was was, was a moment that rocked me to the core. When I got back to Washington, my boss swung around the doorframe of my office and Told me I was out. He was actually doing me a favour and giving me 24 hours notice of when it was actually about to come down the pipeline. So. But what did you. I, what caused that? There's a bit of a backstory here. So, I had sent an email to Rick, my boss. I was concerned about misappropriation of funds, and it was my role in that particular job to, you know, to risk manage anything that would harm the reputation of the business. So, I flagged misappropriation of funds because it was a fact that was actually going on. And as soon as the CEO got wind of that, that was really the catalyst to letting me go. So the CEO wasn't happy that I was onto what was happening. And of course, my memo, which outlined potential reputational you know, damage, um, ended up being on the the front page of the Washington Post about six or seven years later. That whole drama kind of brought the organisation down. But at the time, I didn't know that was the reason. So, I was doing my job thinking any employee who cared about the business would be telling their boss this. So, I did. But at the time, it was framed up as you know, we're letting people go because of the global financial crisis. That was how it was framed up oh, to Oh, so me. you didn't
1: know that it was related? No,
0: not at the time, not in that moment. So in the moment, I thought, but I'm doing such a great job. And, you know, it came totally out of left field. It, it just it just smacked me in the face and it really hurt. So that was a moment of complete truth for me. I had never been through being made redundant in my life. So I have a lot of empathy for people going through this. And that was obviously the catalyst to me making some different decisions about my life.
1: Can I go to that moment then? Mm. How were you feeling?
0: It was that moment where your stomach just, you feel like you want to throw up. It was my whole world coming undone in that moment, because what people did not know was that I was on an employer-specific visa to work in the United States. So this wasn't just about losing my job. For me, in that very split second, I knew that I probably had to leave the country and abandon the life that I had created there with an incredible network of people. It was losing my whole life and livelihood. So I felt absolutely rocked to the core I remember I I couldn't put a sentence together. On the way home, I went straight to a friend's place and I was as I was walking up the stairs, I broke down and I just cried uncontrollably. I was absolutely devastated and I said to myself right, I'm going to just allow myself to be really upset about it. And I had to decide what was I going to do? Did I want to stay? Did I want to really fight to stay? Or did I, did I have to pack up and leave? And so I did a deal with myself to allow myself to cry all night. But at eight o'clock in the morning, the alarm was going off and it was game on because I wasn't prepared to give up a really incredible life that I'd spent years building there. You know, we all have that gut instinct and my gut instinct said, I've got to stay. And so that activated me to calling a couple of key people in my network and making sure that I could do everything within my power and exhaust myself to be able to stay in the country and keep working. And what was the time frame?
1: What time pressures did you have to do that?
0: I consulted a lawyer immediately and knew that I had 10 working days to find another job and I just got cracking and had my network reach out to people who I did not necessarily know so we could figure out what were the good jobs within communication going on in Washington at the time and how could I tactfully jump in on a candidate process that was already well and truly underway and that ended up happening.
1: So we're going to look at two factors in your Mm. book, Future Fit, and you've nearly touched on them already. So you reach your goal within nine days. You mentioned network and you also mention your reputational capital. So Mm. out of all of the factors, because there are many in your book about Mm. being future fit, let's just focus in on them. So this concept of building reputational capital, what do you mean by that?
0: Reputation capital is the sum total of our online and offline behaviours. Essentially, it is personal brand times 100. So, when decisions are being made about us, when we're not in the room, that's what I'm talking about. What is being said about you when you are not in the room? Why is it personal brand times 100? Because it's so much more than personal brand. Your reputation capital is already leaving a trail online, and so... That absolutely is going to translate to our professional lives. So for example, we get rated when we're in an Uber. So how many how many of us have maybe slightly nicer to the Uber driver because we know we're being rated? So our reputation trail is already there. So that will translate to our professional identity. And what I mean by that is even something as simple as LinkedIn, that is one element of your reputation trail. So it's an opportunity really for all of us to curate that feed and to make sure that we're being Represented properly, and that our capacity and our scope and scale of work is being articulated in a way that communicates value around our capability.
1: How do we curate that? It sounds a little bit exhausting.
0: It can be exhausting because we're already so overwhelmed in the day to day. And I know this takes a bit of work, but I really believe it's worth it because I say to people, if your CEO looked at your LinkedIn profile today, would you be absolutely thrilled about it? And most people say, well, no, I wouldn't be. So my response to that is then we have to curate it. We have to do two things. Make sure, number one, make sure our headshot is up to date because you don't want people looking at your profile thinking, well, if the headshot is out of date, then does that mean they're skill set is also out of date. (laughs) It's all about currency in the marketplace. So, number one, headshot. Number two, are we communicating our value in a way that's clear and compelling and indicates what our purpose is?
1: And we're speaking with Andrea Clark. She's a former foreign correspondent, the founder of a consultancy firm, career CEO, and the author of Future Fit. I'm Lisa Leong, and you're listening to This Working Life. What is that process then going to the next level of detail to find your purpose because it sounds like that's the central part of building a reputation capital.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely about figuring out how are we truly different in the marketplace? How do we stand out? Why do people come to us for our expertise? And I think that there is a, you know a very simple four-step framework we can follow to work this out and that starts with number 1 considering our brand. Why am I different? What has led me to this place? How do I contribute in a meaningful way? And that's it's really all about knowing yourself. Why do people come to me? What are my strengths? And it sounds simple, but it does take time to sit back and reflect and really investigate what that looks like and what it means. And then secondly, creating a platform. This might be for all of us as simple as LinkedIn. So if that is the only platform you're on, fantastic. Hmm. Just make sure that it's clean and sophisticated and reflects who you are. Headshot, summary, key skills, because you will have far more people looking at that than you will people that you meet face to face. And what you want is people who meet you to, to think, oh, well, there's an absolute parallel between the brand and that sort of social capital that you trade with online. And so- consider, create, amplify. Do we have a message? What do we believe in? What do we want to be communicating and talking about? How are we going to amplify that message to our audience? And we've got to think about how much time does our audience have? How much time do we have through the week? So if we're only going to share one article a week, then let's be purposeful about it and let's be clear about why we're sharing it. And then fourthly, engagement. Are we getting engagement around that particular platform?
1: What do you do with people who may be somewhat reticent to put themselves forward?
0: We see this in every single workshop and I feel strongly that it is not public relations when it's a matter of fact over opinion. So I'll give you an example. I had um, an absolutely delightful woman that I was training at Telstra, who was literally responsible for putting out millions of devices into the marketplace. Now, you know, her business card said something very different and, frankly, very dull and dry. <laughs> and by the end of that conversation, she was able to articulate, "Well, it's my job to put nine million Apple devices into the marketplace on behalf of Telstra," and so I urged her next time she got into the lift with Andy Pan, the CEO, to make sure that she introduced herself and articulated that value. Because in this moment, in this live face-to-face moment, which I think is becoming shorter and sharper, we're only seen in soundbites. In that moment, it's about building interest. It's not about losing interest. And where you have a really great moment to connect with someone important to you, then we need to do that in a meaningful way.
1: In your book, you say that traditional networking is over. Why? What, what does relief. this
0: new networking <laughs> look like? You, aren't you relieved to know that? Well, I think that the future of work will require our networks to go deeper and, and three-dimensional, and what that means is they won't be transactional You know, forget about walking into a room and having that awkward moment of asking people what they do for a living and and the swapping of the business card. Mm. I think it's about cultivating a tribe that's connected, that's candid and caring. And I think this is going to be far more efficient because when we look at how we'll be interacting with others in the next 10 years, it'll be faster, it'll be looser and less structured. So when we have those, those exchanges, we want them to have meaning and we find so much meaning in our dormant ties. So, Okay. <laughs> I think that's where the, the real power lies in the people that, for example, we went to school with or we went to university with and we've perhaps lost contact with over the past 10 to 15 to 20 years. Is that what you so mean
1: by dormant ties? Dormant
0: ties, absolutely. This is where the hidden power is. There are new opportunities in the old ties. And there was a recent study in the US where 244 executives in four different MBA classes were prompted to reconnect with contacts that they that they hadn't seen for, you know, for years. And so they're encouraged to have conversations with those people and try to get information that was useful to their their day job and they found it was an absolute bonanza in ways that they could move their own business forward and this is what I'm talking about reconnecting with people who who you know and you know you're a qualified candidate to them you're already a trusted agent to them but they have an entirely different network that they can bring you in on and I'll give you a brief example because I think this is a great example of what I'm talking about the most valuable piece of work that I have landed in my business was through an amazing friend called Candice Trelaw. And Candice and I grew up on the Gold Coast together. And I ran into Candice 20 years later at a function in Melbourne, and she was working in supply chain at Telstra. And she said, you know, I'd love to get you into the business. And of course, you know, she knew me, she trusted me. She had been following me at a distance and had seen my body of work over a number of years. So I was confident that by putting me in front of her boss, I would not embarrass her, <laughs> you know, to deliver meaningful work that had a great outcome for the business. And, you know, in the background, I knew that it didn't take me two years to generate that business. It was kind of an instant get, which was, you know, is remarkable because often there's quite a long gestation period between meeting someone and actually delivering the work. Some very useful tips there. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you.
1: Andrea Clark. And Andrea has just released her second edition of her book, Future Fit. Now from unwilling career breaks to planned career breaks. Chris Kent is a recruitment specialist with Hayes Recruiting. Chris, Welcome to This Working Life.
2: Thank you very much, Lisa. Good to be here.
1: Hayes surveyed more than a 1,000 people in Australia and New Zealand about taking a career break. What were the results?
2: Well, interestingly, 64% of women and 49% of men have taken a career break at least once during their working life.
1: That sounds uh, like a big number.
2: It is a big number, a surprisingly big number, Um, but they were for different reasons. Right. Um, So primarily for women, 41% was the largest reason, and that was to have children. But for men, it was 25% was the largest reason, so quite diverse reasons for men, but the largest reason was actually to travel. Uh, The second highest for men was actually to study or retrain.
1: Yep, so 21%. And the second highest reason for women was 14%, which was to travel. Now the term portfolio career is becoming more common, what is a portfolio career?
2: If you can imagine a, a magpie that likes to pick up morsels of different things from the oval, um, this is where we're approaching our careers now. We're starting to build this portfolio where we like to have a little piece of this and a little piece of that. And it, sometimes in order to make those transitions, a career break is pretty important to do the either retraining, the relearning, build the network, um, possibly travel to learn a little more around what you're seeking. So that's some of the reasons. The other are uh, more traditional reasons, obviously, uh, to have a family, maybe to balance the lifestyle within your family to enable either a mother or a father to return back to work and pursue their career interests. We are an ageing population, so there is caring for parents as well as becoming a factor.
1: So you've covered a lot of the benefits of taking a career break. Do some people take career breaks for other reasons? For example, because of the greater use of technology and feeling like they're always on in their working lives?
2: It is a problem. Um, We want to know what's going on at all times, but uh, there is a trade-off for that, and that does require us to be able to find the downtime.
1: And for some, downtime means a career break. Absolutely. And in terms of career breaks, how long are we talking?
2: look, career breaks uh, can vary quite a lot. There's the short sabbaticals to travel, which can be sort of the three to six month mode versus sometimes it can be for the life of uh, your children at school. So it really does vary anything from short term three months up to quite a number of years.
1: And so for men, if 25% are taking travel, does that mean that they took shorter breaks than women generally?
2: Yeah, that's the assumption from the survey results, Yes.
1: So you've given us some really good reasons for taking these career breaks. But how many of your respondents said it wasn't easy to re-enter the workforce, Chris?
2: Yeah, look, uh, 66% of uh, men and 69% of women encountered challenges re-entering the workforce. One of the biggest was just simply how to answer job interview questions about the relevancy of their skills following time out of the workforce. Why was it it difficult? It's a a real challenge. Why was it difficult? I think we are still overcoming the the stigma of of a gap on the CV. Look, the challenges that we get regularly reported on is little acknowledgement of past experience. Um, Skills may be perceived as out of date. It's been difficult for people to get a meaningful role after a career gap of two years or more. Uh, Sometimes it's uh, pay parity, being able to get the level of remuneration that they were on prior to going on the career break.
1: Right. So let's be specific. When you're writing your CV, should you reveal that you had a career break? Yes or no?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, as a recruiter for the amount of years I've been doing it, um, pings our interests when we see a gap on a CV. We're curious, we want to know why, why hasn't anything been included? And often it could paint the picture of uh, there's a job that you don't want to have on your CV or there's time away or in extreme circumstances you might have been in prison or something along those lines. So the gap was never seen as a good thing. Um, These days we really, really encourage our applicants to don't leave the gaps, tell us what went on there. It's better to be transparent. Um, It's really, really important that when a recruiter or an employer is considering your application that they know the whole picture because we understand more about what goes on in people's private lives these days. Not much is private and it's important we understand the whole picture of the person that we're recruiting.
1: And how much detail are we putting in there about it? Well,
2: if, for example, let's take some of the most common ones. So if you went travelling, highlight that you went travelling and just a a brief note on on maybe where you travelled to and the nature of your travel, That's, that's interesting for a start. And one of the challenges job seekers have is being memorable. So, Mm -hmm. making sure that there is something to talk about or something to assess in an interview process, particularly these days with more and more artificial intelligence assessing uh, applications and things where that that human doesn't necessarily jump out enough in CVs. So, putting where you travelled, what did you get out of it? Yeah, you know, did you travel independently? Did you travel with your family? Did you pick up new interests when you travelled?
1: What I'm hearing you say is that you look at the career break and try and identify the skills that you learnt yep. along the way.
2: Absolutely, and that's the modern CV. So the modern CV will not be about listing your jobs anymore. The modern CV is listing your skills. The jobs and the employers that you work for along the way will become a little sidebar.
1: I'm speaking with Chris Kent. He's the State Regional Director in WA for Hayes Recruiting. We're talking career breaks on This Working Life with me, Lisa Leong. Chris, what should younger workers list on their CV as the reason for their career breaks? And how does that differ from older workers?
2: Uh, I don't think it does differ. I think it's being transparent about what... What it was for. Um, in some ways, if you're an employer and you're employing a 25 year old who hasn't traveled and hasn't seen the world yet, you're sitting on a ticking time bomb that it's going to come at some point. So you would rather, uh, as an employer, see, okay, great, they've had, they've had a bit of travel, they've done a little bit of that, they've got some of that out of their system, and we should get them for a couple of years at least. Um, and that's also within the context that employers a good point. now I realize. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the employers now realize that a recruit for life is unlikely. You know, people are changing jobs regularly and it's about getting the most out of people when they're there. Uh still investing them because if you don't invest they leave anyway.
1: If I've been out of the workplace for an extended period of time, how do I keep my skills relevant?
2: Some of it can be done Remotely, if you are raising kids and you're at home, you can still remain well-read. You can uh, potentially do online courses and things like that. Um, But some of it, you need to be in a job to, to really understand. So that's a challenge. And that means compromise between the job seeker and the employer to accept that There'll be a period of transition when they return to the workforce where they need to get up to speed with those skills and there might be a period of investment as well.
1: And what about things like um, salaries and going back to the salary that you were on before your career break or even getting a higher salary?
2: Yeah, well, look, you know, the reality of, of salaries is if you have that period of uh, reinvestment, if you like, you need to pick up skills it's logical to suggest that you might come back a little in salary in order to work your way back to where you were and beyond.
1: Despite all, all my is, worldly experience, shouldn't you be paying yeah, more for
2: that's that, it. Chris? Well, yeah, the, the, and this is the other thing as well. With um, Often what we have is fantastic Aussie talent going overseas, picking up experience, but also one of the big things that we pick up in our careers is, is a network and the network's worth something. And if you go over and become a fantastic business development person in Silicon Valley or something along those lines, um, and you come back to Australia, if your network is all in venture capitalists in the US that really have no great interest in Australia, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to command the same salary because your network is not of the same value.
1: And Chris, then as a, a final tip, when you're taking the career break, what are you doing then, especially in social media?
2: Yeah, critical point. Um, firstly, on the negative side of social media, just to cover this off, you, your online profile needs to be kept private. So if you're seeing an interview saying, yeah, I spent traveling and, you know, I really learned about different cultures and all that. And you, in your online profile says something completely different from that, <laughs> then that's a problem. Yeah. Um, from a more positive standpoint, you know, online uh, networking tools such as LinkedIn and, and other things are just such great, powerful networks now. You can keep your contacts relevant and current. You can do these online courses. You can go and have a meeting with someone that would be important to your career just because you're not ready to go back into the workforce right now. You can reach out. You can get a coffee with someone. You can keep that network current. And that would be my advice, particularly actually to non-working parents who have taken the opportunity to raise their children full time. But it is really, really critical if your intention is to return to the workforce that you mix your contacts and your network between professional and personal and community, because it's hard to restart that if you let it slide.
1: Chris Kent, State Regional Director in WA for Hayes Recruiting. Now, if you're in Melbourne, we'd love to meet you. Yes, This Working Life is coming to a theatre near you, the Jam Factory in South Yarra. We're doing a live show, Risky Business, at the Melbourne Podcast Festival. It's at 11.30am, Saturday, July 31st. Come along, meet the team. All the details are on our program page. And if you missed any of today's show, remember you can hear us at any time, anywhere, wherever you get your podcasts. This Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle. I'm Lisa Leong and until next week, keep working.